Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, thank you, Guy, for that very kind and welcoming introduction. Uh, good morning, River Bluff Church. Good to see each of you, and it's a joy to stand up here in front of you. Um, just to be here in the, in, the, in the opportunity to share God's Word, but also to reconnect. Uh, you know, it wasn't long ago, probably about five years ago, that my wife and I and a group of people sat right in that section right there. And uh, we had asked the church to pray for us as a church plant called Centerpoint. And um, River Bluff Church was the church that said, hey, we'll stand with you as you go out. Every church needs a sponsoring church. And you said, we'll be your sponsor. And uh, you prayed for us. And in essence, you commissioned us out. And uh, Centerpoint began um, in the Tanger area. That's where we began, Centerpoint Shopping Area. That's why it was called Centerpoint, Centerpoint of Town. So we began there on a journey that uh, we didn't realize that, um, you know, it's amazing how life presents itself, but, you know, the Holy Spirit has the pen and we're the parchment, right? The paper, and he writes on it. And so while we were there in our first year, there were two church plants that, that joined in with us. We had not planned that. But within one year, we became this blended, amalgamated family, a blended family of churches, three churches, and trying to plant one new work here in the city. And once we did that, we realized we couldn't stay where we were. <clears throat> so we moved down to Burke High School on the upper part of the peninsula. It is the only high school on the peninsula. Uh, it's an all-black school. We were pretty much predominantly all-white church. And we thought, this is awesome because God is bringing us together as two people. We're cross-culturally reaching out together. And we love being at Burke High School. So for a very short time at Burke High School, about two years, the headmaster was moved to another position. And then they took all of our kids' classrooms and turned it into a tech lab. And for some reason, computers and babies don't go together. I don't know why. I mean, our little preschoolers would have loved it, you know. But they basically said, listen, we love having you here, but you're going to have to pay twice the amount of money you're giving per rent. Um, that's what we got for you. So we said, for one year, we need to figure out a plan, a temporary plan. So we went and knocked on the door at Citadel Square Baptist Church. I was building a relationship with Pastor David. We were praying for the city together. 45 precious people sitting in 800 seats in the corner of meeting in Calhoun, being faithful to the work that was there. <clears throat> 166 years old church. By the way, none of them there were 166 old, years old. But, you know, anyways, just for perspective's sake, I wanted to clarify that. Um, but it was an older congregation. Well, we had about 300 very boisterous young families and kids and middle-aged adults and we came in we said we'll be like a mouse we'll come in at nine o'clock and we'll leave we'll be quiet and sure enough we had the opportunity to be there for a year during that time we began to really enjoy the space with each other in fact can i say this we began courting each other is that okay to say is that weird that might be a little weird, huh? Anyways, well, Paul, the Apostle Paul said the church is like the, right, the husband and the wife, the bride, uh, the bride of Christ. And, okay, well, never mind. I'm just trying to justify my analogy. <clears throat> All to say, we really like each other. And as we began to pray and talk together, something amazing happened. Um, we began to work through what would it look like if we became one church? So here's this old, 160-year-old church, and here we are, just about, at that time, about three years old. And... Um, 
The Lord said, this is, this, is, this is my work and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so we came together and became one church. So we took the center point name, put it in a file folder, and took on the old historic name, Citadel Square Baptist Church. And an amazing thing has happened ever since. Um, we, four weeks ago, went to two services. When I walk into church and I see Citadel cadets coming in and filling up a whole pew, and College of Charleston students coming in and filling up other spaces, I know it's a new day. Balcony had people in it. So what I'm saying is that's not the work that we've done. It's the work that God has done. And we just simply said, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. So I'm coming back to the Antioch church here. This is our Antioch to say, hey, here's the report. Paul and Barnabas went out. Some great things happened. And you should be encouraged. This is part of your story. It's, it's God's story, I know. But it's part of your story because you said you'll stand with us and pray for us and commission us out. So be encouraged by the work of God and the gospel that's going on around the city. I want to also say that I could be like Paul and write out of Romans 16 where he took a whole chapter of scripture and just thanked a lot of people. And River Bluff Church, you guys would be on that long list for me. From your staff to Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe is a dear friend. He's a mentor to me. He's a Barnabas encourager to me. My prayer is I'm the same to him. And we have this reciprocity of relationship. I love the way that you all serve this city. I love the way that your staff opens their arms to host things here. We've had leadership trainings here that we've done through the association. Um, the counseling ministry has been incredible to serving so many of our churches and people all around the city. I can go on. I can even talk about that sockless prophet that was here a while back. You know, the guy doesn't wear any socks. I think his name is Kurt. Is that right? Kurt Bradford? The sockless prophet. Is that what he's known as? I'm not sure. Anyways, I'm trying to give him a new nickname, you know. Probably he's not going to stick, but let me tell you what. <clears throat> Don't tell him this, please, but I'll tell you now that it's being recorded, you're going to know. He's going to know. Um, I have a job to work with 78 churches all around the city. That means 78 pastors, uh, 78 maybe leadership teams. And as I do that, everywhere I go, there's this kingdom coach that's moving all around the city. And he's got this Starbucks card. And he's using it a bunch. Honestly, honestly, um, he is doing so much ministry in our city, it's amazing. Don't tell him this, but he's actually doing part of my job. And I'm really thankful for that. <laughs> All to say, I can't do it by myself anyways, but having a guy like Kurt Bradford to sit in a chair, have coffee with a pastor and encourage him, uh, it's amazing what God's doing in him. I go around the state and I tell them to say, hey, you ever heard of a kingdom coach? They say, what is a kingdom coach? What is that? Well, let me tell you about Kurt Bradford and River Bluff Church and their vision to send out their pastor who transitioned, gave it to Joe, and he's out there serving pastors. And they're saying, well, what does he do? Give me a job description because I want to do it at my church. I want my church to do that. So I want you to know that your vision, you're sending out your best, if you will. God is using that in all around the state. So uh, I tell it wherever I go. I go to North American Mission Board, talk about replanting churches, and they say, what's one of the secret kind of ingredients in the mix? Well, you got to have a kingdom coach in your city because it will help move the gospel and the church forward. So I just want to tell you how thankful I am um, in every way for all of that. So my heart is full. It's like, you know, giving flowers. Sometimes we give flowers at funerals when the person that we're honoring can't smell them. 
So I'm giving flowers to you to say, please smell the fragrance of the bouquet of thanks and for the kingdom that God is just pushing in and out through you. So if that's all I do, then I've accomplished a lot this morning. However, I want us to look at the scriptures this morning and see what God has to say to us. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. You'll see it on the screen in a moment. But I want to talk about this very ordinary topic because what we see in the ordinary, God makes extraordinary. Creating tables and displaying the gospel. Creating tables and displaying the gospel. Now, something about Luke's gospel is very important to note. When Luke was writing about the life and ministry of Jesus, what we find in Luke's gospel is that Jesus was either going to a meal, sitting down at a table eating a meal, or he's coming from a table after having a meal. Now, aren't you glad that you serve a Savior who likes to eat? See, that's why I think he's Baptist. He, he was probably Baptist, don't you think? That he, no, I'm not going to go there. Forget it. Sorry. But he, he did that because he wanted to build relationships. See, there's nothing sacred about a table, is there? It's what happens when you come to a table. And let me say this, just to set this up for us this morning. Jesus not only proclaimed the gospel, but let's remember this, that he himself is the gospel. Remember what he said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me, um, comes to the Father but through me. So I want us to remember that. So whenever Jesus is at the table, things change. People get transformed. And the good news is this. The gospel that came to you and to me, when we sit at a table and the gospel is present, people change. We change. See, I... I know you're like me and I'm like you in this way. The gospel is good news. We, we agree to that. That's an easy answer to say yes to. But the question is, is the gospel good news today for me? And how is it good news today? In other words, what area of my life is the gospel redeeming right now? The brokenness in me. The, the unbelief that's still there. I'm set secure with Jesus but I still live every day. And as I live out that day, I need the gospel to inform every area of my life. So what we're going to see today in this text is a situation where Jesus comes to dinner and everything begins to change. So look with me in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Okay, do you have the picture? Jesus is sitting at a table in someone else's house, a Pharisee, and an unwelcomed, uninvited guest comes in. Now, what was typical is whenever someone would be eating at a meal, especially a speaker or a teacher, is as soon as the teacher was reclining back at the table, then there would be informal conversation that would take place. Questions maybe about what he taught on or just general conversations. This is where relationships really began to fire off with each other. 
Now, typically, at a table in this setting, there weren't really chairs that you could sit in. People mostly sat on the floor, kind of to the side with their feet behind them. And it may be that the table they sat at was a wooden table. It could have been a mason, like a, a made out of concrete or a masonry of some sort. Which is interesting, because if you think about Jesus in his earthly life, he was the carpenter's son, right? So I kind of wonder sometimes, how many tables did Jesus sit at that he and his fa earthly father worked on? Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. That's totally for free. It has nothing to do with my message. <laughs> but I want to make, make an ordinary thing to show how extraordinary it becomes when, when Jesus comes to the table. So when we, think about, when we think about what was happening, here he's sitting and behind his, his feet he's relaxed, he's reclining, and all of a sudden this woman comes in. Now it says in Luke's gospel right here, he makes it very clear. A woman of the city who was a sinner. All right, do you get that picture? She did not have a good reputation. Now take this in view. She's coming in, not to a restaurant, not to a pub. She's coming in at all places in a Pharisee's house. Do you see the, the contrast? Do you see how opposite this is? A Pharisee was a teacher and a leader of the law, crossing every T, dotting every I. So she comes in unwelcomed, uninvited. I wonder in some ways if Jesus would have said, uh, ma'am, excuse me, just a moment. I've been invited to this table. You and I can have a good conversation, but right now I'm a guest here, so it would be better for you. Let's talk later. But here's the reality of what happens when Jesus is at the table. Everyone's welcome. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? That everyone has access to the gospel? Aren't you glad that you had access to the gospel? You and I. So here's this contrast of this religious elite, this self-righteous Pharisee's house, and here's this woman of the city coming in. And interesting enough, you'll see that she says nothing in her words to Jesus. She doesn't speak a word the whole time. She even leaves without speaking a word. But her actions display a thousand words. You see, the first point is this. Tables create space for relationships. Tables create space for relationships. Nothing sacred about a wooden table. It's what happens when you're there. This is where we see gospel presence. Gospel presence. I love what Paul said to Timothy. He said, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. Now, he's not saying work salvation. What he's saying is that we bring salvation near. We bring the gospel close. When we live it out based on what we believe, and we share it based on how we live. And so this woman is living out what she believes about Jesus. She's behind Jesus doing the most amazing thing. She's taking her hair and the tears and the alabaster box of ointment. Now that typically was a precious, very expensive thing that a woman would have. Besides people owning something like that to take fragrance and, and take care of maybe a, a burial, that in a woman's keeping was for her wedding day. It was like she would be adorned with this fragrance and it would fill the room. And so she takes this box of ointment, she breaks it, she begins to 
do this with Jesus' feet, anointing them. Feet are dirty. Feet are nasty, aren't they? You ever look at your feet? When was the last time you looked at your foot? No, never mind. Don't do that. Don't take your shoe off and look at your foot. But we have closed toes now, don't we? We have shoes. Nike, Reebok, whatever you got on your feet. We, we got shoes now. Back then, sandals. Dirty, dusty, yucky feet. So apparently in this story, Jesus comes in and there was no water to clean his feet. So he just sat down at the table. She comes in with this ointment and the tears from her eyes mingle together with her hair. You see how low she is? She is, she is basically on the ground, hands and knees. And more importantly than her posture is her heart condition that says, I surrender all. The word for tears literally means heart water. Out of her heart, she's cleaning his feet. So what is she saying about who Jesus is? She's saying, I believe and you're the one I'm putting all my hope in. You know, it's amazing, while this is going on, there's something that this woman came to in herself, and that is that she was done with hiding. And that's the second aspect, is Jesus is seeking those who are done with hiding. You remember in the cool of the day, God came into the garden and he said, Adam and Eve, where are you? What were they doing? They were hiding. Why were they hiding? They were hiding behind the guilt of their shame, of their sinfulness their brokenness. You see, we are good at hiding. You see, someone says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't respond that way when you have a two-second interval right with somebody. But when you have a conversation and you have a real conversation, um, we can begin to hide behind things because we want others to think differently about us. So we hide behind our things, our stuff. We even create what some authors have called functional saviors where we, we kind of set them up as if I'm putting my hope in this. So if I have the right house, the right job, the right wife, the right kids, the, the right income, all those things, I can just hide behind all that and hide my brokenness there. We're good at hiding. We do that. That's what we do. We're, 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 we're destined to do that. But here's the amazing thing. As good as we are at hiding, God is much better at finding. Isn't that good news? In Mark's gospel, it says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Aren't you glad that the gospel and the Holy Spirit hounded you? Like did not stop? It just kept coming after you until you finally said, I surrender, I believe, like this woman. I'm, I'm leaving it all. In greater Charleston, there are 760,000 people that live in the Tri-County area. Just get in traffic if you're not sure these stats are right, right? By the year 2028, 1 million people living in greater Charleston. Traffic's going to get worse. Hey, you know what though? Sunday morning, I'm easing like Sunday morning. <laughs> Sunday morning, my wife and I came across the bridge, came here to River Bluff Church and hit one traffic light, but it was easy. Now there's a reason for that. 760,000 roughly in the Tri-County area, based on Barner research, 
about 90,000 of the 760,000 are getting up in the morning on a Sunday, on any given Sunday, getting in their car and driving to an evangelical church. That's why traffic's good on Sunday morning. That means 670,000 people are making choices not to go to church. Not that church itself, right, is the whole spiritual metric of spirituality, but it's an indicator, right, of where people put their priority time and focus. 670,000 don't. They work hard, Saturday comes, they party hard. I'm living life in the low country. Now, let's, let's add one more thing to that. 38 people a day move into the Tri-County area. 38 people a day. Hence, we're getting up to the 1 million mark pretty soon, right? Out of the 38 people, 55% have no faith background. Or they're called the Duns, D-O-N-E. They're done with church. They're de-church. They've been there, done that, done. So over half of the people moving in every day are not thinking, I got to get my job, I got to get my house, got to get the school. Oh, and we've got to find that church. It's not even in their view, not even in their concept of thinking. So are the fields ripe unto harvest in Greater Charleston? Yes! So in my role as the Director of Missions, working with 78 churches, one of the things that I'm praying for is out of Matthew 9, that we would see what Jesus said, look at it. Look at it. Jesus said, look and see that the fields are ripe unto harvest, and pray to me that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers out. Why? Because people are helpless and harassed like sheep without shepherd. Helpless and harassed. You know what's important for us to remember is where we came from, where we were. You see, when God invited us to his table for the first time, we sat down. We were not family. The Bible says we we're born in our sins, separated from God. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, it even says that we were enemies because God is holy and we're not. But he invited us to his table. Aren't you glad about the song that we sing? Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. You see, this woman was done with hiding. She was done. She believed and she demonstrated by her action. Now, let's see what happens. Let's look further. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. For she is a sinner. Make sure that's clear. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now, let me pause for a minute here and get this in your view. All right, so Simon is his name. And Simon is saying something to himself. Do you see the words there? He's saying this. Here's how I picture it going down. Man, I cannot believe this. This guy, Jesus, who I invited to come teach at the synagogue today, he just, does he even know who that woman is behind him? See, see what's going on? He's probably mumbling to himself, saying to himself. But Jesus having... Super divine ears could hear not only what he was saying, but was in his heart. So he says, Hey, Simon, oh, 
you, are you talking to me? Yeah, yeah, teacher, what do you want to say? That's kind of what I think is going on in the story here. So I said, let me share something with you. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, note the sarcasm. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is pointing out the obvious. You ever been in the meetings where you're kind of going, someone's got to point out the obvious here because the obvious is right, right in front of us like the elephant in the room. There's a sinner behind you who has a lot of debt. She is a sinner. Let's make it clear. This woman is a sinner. So Jesus says, hey, Simon, I want to say something. So he gives a comparison. The one the larger debt will love more. The one with lesser will love less. Okay, got it. He could teach that. What is Jesus doing in this moment right here? He is giving access to a woman that wasn't invited. But what is he doing towards Simon in this moment? He's saying, Simon, I'm trying to give you access. Because see, what Simon didn't see is that the reality is, based on God's standard, this woman was forgiven and free. Simon was hiding, still hiding behind his self-righteousness. You see, that's the reality of us in life is that we're either hiding behind our own self-righteousness or our sin-righteousness. Tim Keller, I think, points it out that way. What is sin-righteousness? Well, sin-righteousness basically says, hey, let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter. God's going to do what he's going to do. Let's live it up. So the younger prodigal, right, in the story, wasted his inheritance, came back broken to the father. But yet the older brother who stayed home did everything as he was told Cross the T's, dotted the I's, was equally lost when we saw the jealousy he had in his heart for the son who was lost that was now found. You see, the reality is we either are living in our self-righteousness or our sin-righteousness, and the only thing that can change us and give us hope is when we come and the playing field is leveled because only Jesus can give a righteousness that's acceptable to God. So he's actually, Jesus in this moment is trying to reach Simon now because he knows the woman behind him, she's good. But the man who thinks he's got it all and thinks that the woman behind him is a scandalous woman, he's trying to reach out with the gospel. You see, tables provide opportunity for real conversations. Tables provide opportunities for real conversations. This is where we see gospel purpose. Jesus was bringing the purpose of the gospel front and center. So he gave this lesson on forgiveness. What's interesting about forgiveness is this. This is what makes forgiveness so generous. Anytime someone forgives a debt, the forgiver still has to pay the debt in full. You ever been forgiven a debt? You ever, maybe some of you have gotten to the place where you've kind of burned the mortgage note because you're done. That's a great day. It's a good feeling. Yeah, debt's gone. Maybe you owe someone something, not just money, but you owe them something uh, uh, relationally. 
and, and you just want to be, you want to be forgiven. You want to be released from the debt that's there. Well, here's the reality is the, the one being forgiven has this moment of blue sky and oxygen like, this is a wonderful moment. I'm no longer bound by this thing that's been hovering and pushing down on me. But here's what happens to the one who's paying the forgiveness is that all the weight of that is now transferred over to the one that is forgiving. Isaiah said it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone to their own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, there still was a debt to pay. And it had to be paid in full. And many times we forget that when, when forgiveness is, is granted and received, it, is that there's still something that that one who's forgiving has to pay. So Jesus is sitting at this table and he knows about this woman and all of her sinfulness. He knows about Simon and where he's hiding behind his self-righteousness. And he's, he knows that there's a debt that he's going to have to pay for both of them. And that's the amazing thing about the cross is that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Because we had a debt we could not pay. And that's the hope of the gospel. See, that's a real conversation. This is gospel purpose at its finest in this moment. And here's the reality. Is that we all were once outsiders. And outsiders become insiders at the table with Jesus. Outsiders become insiders at the table with Jesus. You know what makes the gospel good news all over again? Is that Jesus paid this debt that he didn't owe because we had a debt we couldn't pay. Let me picture it this way. There's a chair sitting here and I've got another chair here. Just pretend this is an imaginary chair here. When we come to the table, we are either sitting in the chair of self-righteousness or sin-righteousness like I illustrated. And it's pretty comfortable for us because we're used to it. This is how I know myself and how I'm approaching God on my terms and my condition. Now, this chair over here is where Jesus is sitting and he sits down at our table. Now, we're sitting there as an enemy separated from God. What does Jesus do? Well, the Bible says that he who knew no sin, sitting in this chair, perfectly righteous, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God in him. What does he do? He says, Craig, I want you to get out of your chair of self-righteousness. You're done. And I want you to sit in my chair that's perfectly righteous. But before you do that, I've got to sit in your chair and take your place. Now, is that good news? I like what the song says. It's the best news ever. That Jesus would give me something I did not deserve in order to take on something that he did not deserve to take on. Now that's good news of the gospel. So when we sit across the table from people, we have to remember that once we were guilty and dead in our sins and trespass, we had no place at the table. There wasn't even a chair there. But Jesus says, I'm going to sit in the chair you've been sitting in and I'm going to take your place so that you can take mine. This woman, she, 
She not only understood it, but she was all in. Like, she was all in. I, I remember um, some real conversations that Rebecca and I began to have with ourselves about where we lived. We, we've been in the Greater Charleston area for 17 years, living in this same subdivision for 17 years. And uh, one day we got a letter from our homeowners association. You ever get one of those? It is not typically one to say, you've been such a great neighbor, we're giving you an award. You know? <laughs> you got to pay more, or you got to park in a different place, or you got to make sure the, the trash can's on the right side of the mailbox, right? All that stuff. Well, this one was a letter that said, everyone got it. You got to paint your mailbox post. They're looking pretty bad. So I'm thinking, well, that's going to go high on my priority list. You know, like tomorrow I'm going to get out and we're going to paint that mailbox post for the Homeowners Association. I sound kind of, I don't know, bitter about that, don't I? I probably be careful. No, I was, we were glad to get it because what the Holy Spirit was doing for us at that time was I could name people on my cul-de-sac by name. I knew something about them and probably two people down the street. But all the 14 homes on our street, I couldn't tell you the names of every person at every address. And here's where I was convicted as a pastor. I got real comfortable driving past these people called neighbors and not knowing their name. That the great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself, the Holy Spirit just put in front of Rebecca and I and said, who are your neighbors? I don't know. I got real good. We got comfortable like all of us do. We drive home in a driveway. We go into our house. We do our thing. We get busy. We get out. I was doing ministry all around the city, different places. But the one place I was driving by, back and forth. And here's what came like in full circle for us. The Holy Spirit said to us, I chose your neighbors. You didn't. So we said, what do we do? Now, there was not an audible voice, okay? It was a sense of direction. Rebecca and I said, well, let's get the can of paint and let's go door by door and knock on the door on a Saturday and say, hey, we know you got the letter we got. Can we paint your mailbox post? Well, it was a walk of shame, honestly. <laughs> I knocked on doors and said, I, my name is Craig. I've lived here for 10 years. My Rebecca, we're coming to help paint your mailbox post because you got the letter too. And by the way, what's your name? So we got their names. We went home and we said, Holy Spirit, what do we do now? He said, I want you to pray for your neighbors by name. See how difficult this is? How complex it is? See, I'm, I'm a simple person. God's got to make it real simple for me. Pray for them by name. So we began doing that. And we said, okay, Holy Spirit, what's next? It's about Christmas time. And we were prompted to open our home for a dessert, holiday dessert, coffee, and tea. On a Sunday night. And I thought, okay, this ain't going to go well. The painting's great, but this is going to fall apart. So we went door by door. Remember, I'm Craig, Rebecca, painted your mailbox post. We're having a dessert coffee. Would you come to our house? Did you know that on a Sunday evening, 13 families were in our house? One did not show, but sent their regrets because they were out of town. Now here's what it showed me, is that God designed every person in his image and likeness and he built in us the desire for community. The problem is, we don't know where to find it. But the church knows about community. We come together from different walks of life 
from different ethnicities, from different economic backgrounds, from different perspectives. We come together in one place called the church and we're this community. So we were convicted about how do we take the community of the church to our community. You see, if, if 38 people a day moving in and 55% of them have a faith background, they're not going to come down to my street and say, Hey, Craig, we, we've got a job, a house. Where are we going to church? But what they might do is they might not come through our front door, but they might come through my front door and sit at my smaller table in order to come sit at a bigger table called the church. That's what I love about the church. The church is a community, but it's like coming to a table every Sunday. God brings his word, the worship of God, prayers that are brought up before God, and we receive and we give and we share, we greet each other, and we're coming to like a table where we receive from God something that he wants for us. I love how God displays his amazing grace in, in what seems to be impossible. Remember the children of Israel left Exodus out in the wilderness and, and the, the nations were saying, okay, now where's your God? Where are you going to eat out here? They began believing it. Where is our God? And they asked this question to the people of Israel. Can your God provide a table in the wilderness? And the answer is, he sure can. Everything's in his hands. Quail comes down from heaven and manna from the earth. That's what I love about your area of accountability. You said in this area right here, in essence, what I hear and I see that, is that you're saying we're going to be a table of the gospel in this spiritual wilderness. Providing food. Spiritual food that people can eat and give, get life from. Living water. Eternal bread. But it, it, it's here, but it's also there. In other words, it's also when you go to your workplace tomorrow morning, when you go to your home this afternoon, when you go to your school and you sit at a table, when you go to the coffee shop, the spiritual food and the reality of the gospel and this life-giving message continues at every table. The question is, are we making space for that? It's so easy to sit at a table and I'll have five meetings going on while I'm talking to one person. You and I both know that's how it is, right? And so you've got to somehow shut it down and say, Lord, help me to hear and talk to this person. He, here's Simon and here's this woman. And Jesus is saying, Simon, I want to say something to you. What's amazing about the Bible is that it's a story and it, it has a beginning and an ending. It, in creation, it says the Bible begins in a garden in Genesis, and then over here in Revelation, it ends in a city. And in between is this incredible story. The story is creation, everything began, and then came the fall, the fall of man, not the fall of, you know, winter seasons and all that stuff. Although we do want fall to come, don't we? Please come. Okay, besides that, the fall of mankind comes. And then what happens after that? When things are broken, in comes the prophets. And they say, a Messiah is coming, a Savior that can redeem all things. He comes in the Gospels, and he comes and proclaims the Gospel. He dies, he's buried, he rises again in order to make a way for redemption. And then the, the, the writers of the Gospel are saying, and there's a day that's coming that he will set everything right. Creation, fall. Redemption, restoration. If we listen long enough to someone's story like Jesus was doing with Simon watching him, 
we will hear not only something about them, where they're from, but they'll begin to tell us what's broken with the world and maybe broken with themselves. And then they'll say, let me tell you what I'm doing to make it right because I'm going to fix this thing. That's what we do as Americans. We fix things. And then when everything is in the right place, this is how it'll look. That divorce my mom and dad went through 10 years ago, I'm going to fix it. The job I lost, and it was, it was wrong, I should not have been fired, I'm going to fix it. The lab results I'm waiting for, I, and, and the doctor's not right, I'm going to fix it. That's what we do. So what happens in that moment as we're hearing someone talk about the functional saviors they're trying to create and make things better and right again? What we do is we insert a better story. We insert a better savior. We insert a hope that is not in our hands to make or to create, but a hope in the hands of God for what should be. And that's simply how the gospel can go forward between us. You may not have a Romans road memorized or every scripture memorized, but if you have two ears like me and one mouth, keep your mouth closed and listen. I'm learning that too. Listen. People will tell you what they're putting their hope, belief in, and when things are right, this is the way it's going to be. They'll tell you that. And when they do, we have an opportunity in that moment at a table to say, let me tell you about one who can redeem all things. And my passion, in my role, and in my job, even as an elder at Citadel Square and in the city, is to simply say, let's see the gospel come and have access for people that are desperate to find it. They just don't know where to get it. They don't know where to get it. And all you have to do is tell them your story, how God changed you. That's it. He will show up in power. All right, let's close. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I enter your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say, among themselves, still in their unbelief, in their self-righteousness, who is this? Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, tables promote love for reconciling relationships. Tables promote love for reconciling relationships. This is where we see gospel power. We needed something so powerful to break through our unbelief, our brokenness, our separation from God that had to break through to give us life. And the gospel is that power that does it. That was happening to the woman behind him. See, God is that seeker. He needs our tables to seek and find those who are lost, just like he found us. You see, faith comes alive when the gospel comes to dinner. Faith comes alive when the gospel or when the kingdom is on display. It's amazing to me as I 
work with churches around the city, so many churches are looking not out the window, but looking at themselves. And what I believe Jesus wants for our churches as we cooperate together in this shared mission of making disciples of all people, of every man, woman, and child, is, is for us to say together, no one church can do that by themselves. You see, we're, we're woefully behind. 900 churches a year are closing their doors in our convention. 900 a year. 1,200 a year are being planted with about a 65% success rate. That means that we're losing ground. But here's what I love about the gospel and about the church. The church and the gospel is eternal. You, you, can't, you, you can't push it away. It, 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 it will be a dominant force. It's destined to be that, to move the kingdom of God forward. The church is the place that does that. So out of the 78 churches, about a third of our churches are in a way of struggle, plateau or decline. They're, 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 they're beginning to really come to some critical points. And here's my prayer for our churches because the church is the place where the means of the kingdom goes out, where we make disciples who make disciples. Is my, my prayer is that gospel renewal will come to our churches. In other words, that we'll fall in love all over again with the gospel. Like this woman who left totally free, totally forgiven, she left with this sense of great joy because all of her debts were paid. I believe there are people in a lot of our churches who have forgotten that. We, we, we do. We forget it. And instead of remembering, we get used to the way things are. So I ask that you pray for me because what I'm praying that I can't make, uh, I can't make a church or a leader do something. I'm not a bishop or a pope, you know. That's not, that's not the way we do things. And, and many times it feels like you're, you're bringing a horse to water and you can't make the horse drink. But then the old farmer said, you could put salt in his oats, though, and make him thirsty. So my, here's what, what I want to do. We're the salt of the earth. What if we put salt in the oats of each other in the church or among churches to say, hey, we've got an area of accountability. We're putting salt in the oats because we want to we we stir up a thirst and a hunger for those who are helpless and harassed. We want to know in this zip code what is harassing people. And how do we bring the hope of the gospel to bring change to that? That the gospel power can make a change, not just simply to do better for people and make things better for them, but to bring them to the place of real hope. There's only one plan. There's only a plan A. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And through my church, I'll display the kingdom of God on the earth. So you are the plan A. You're, you're it. We're it. So my question today is this, who, what are you doing with your tables? The ones you own, the ones you borrow? And while you're at your table, what are you doing with the opportunity for those that are sitting across from it? Listen to their story. Insert the better story. Who's close to you but far from God right now? Whatever God may be saying to you and to me again, let's keep asking him, Lord, Holy Spirit, what's next? What do you want? I love that about your church. You're already, you guys got a forward tilt into this. You're an example. But even as an example, you can get really comfortable with where you are. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. But I want you to hear from me as we close this morning. 
that uh, I'm so grateful for the way you've invested in, in church planting, in church strengthening. CBA existed. Strengthen churches, strengthen leaders, plant churches. And as we do that, I thank you for your partnership in the gospel in that. Citadel Square is located on Meeting in Calhoun Street. We share a property line with Emmanuel AME Church. Now put that into the narrative. Isn't that interesting? Where God moved us all the way down. And they've become dear brothers and sisters to us. We've been building a relationship with them. But it made me think about that night where many of these families and victims have become dear to me, precious to me. Um, that night there was a table that was set in that room. And a dear, dear lady, Myra Thompson, opened the Bible out of Mark's Gospel and was teaching and sitting at that table was an enemy. Every one of those believers who lost their life that night, who were murdered and martyred, I believe they sat there with a deep sense that the Spirit, the Shepherd, Jesus was with them. I know, I know that for the fact. No matter how horrific and crazy that it was and bad and wrong, even in those moments, God shows up. The psalm says this, that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You ever thought about inviting an enemy over to dinner? It's not my first choice. But I wonder if we looked at people who are our neighbors who don't know God and we sat there with eyes of Jesus and looked at them and realized that, you know what? They're an enemy. They're separated. They're lost. So how can an enemy become a family member? Only one way. The same way you became a family member. When you surrendered, when you said like this woman, it doesn't matter what I've done. It just doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is that Jesus has given me his chair. And I can sit at this table forgiven. No longer an enemy, not a spiritual leader, self-righteous, knowing everything, but I can sit at this table. Because he who became sin for me gave me his righteousness. Tables are not sacred, but they're ordinary. And when Jesus comes to a table through you, the extraordinary happens. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we have come to sit at your table today to hear your word, to once again open the scriptures and to read, to hear, to see, and again to believe again, all over again, brand new. Believe again what's true about you, what's true about the gospel, and what's true about us. So I just simply pray, Holy Spirit, as you've been working on us, God, would you work on us together collectively, that you would speak to us what you want to say. Would you take your word and apply it? Would you let us leave from here, Lord, beginning to answer questions that you're asking us. What's next? Lord, what's mine is yours. Use it for your glory. Let me just be willing to open my table, to open space for relationship, for open space for those that I don't even know yet. 
God, help me to connect with them, to love my neighbor as myself. So Lord, do what only you can do and have your way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.